This is episode 68 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Negotiating a Starting Salary. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, the advice show where we talk about work-related issues or challenges and some ideas and suggestions for how to deal with them. I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and the host of the show, and I thank you for joining me in my quest to make our workplaces better and more welcoming to everyone. Let's do this. I am really honored to have a representative from Russell Reynolds on the show today. Nick Roberts uh, was a person that I met a few weeks ago, actually at an Association of Bioscience Officers meeting, and I, I wanted to give a little plug for them. They are really a wonderful organization and have a strong branch here in San Diego. I've been involved with them, shoot, probably for 15 or 20 years and they have a very nice national conference in May. So I did want to mention them. Anyway, I met Nick at one of their meetings where they were talking about boards of directors and sort of the current state of affairs with CFOs. And he struck me as such a straightforward and a person with a lot of expertise. I was fortunate enough to entice him to come on to my show. And I'll introduce him. Nick Roberts is a member of Russell Reynolds Associates financial officers practice. And I should mention that Russell Reynolds, if you're not familiar with them, is a very prestigious recruiting firm. He's based in San Francisco. He works on senior financial officer assignments across industry, but specializes in CFO work for venture-backed and public biotechnology clients. Prior to joining Russell Reynolds, Nick got his MBA from Duke University and is a graduate of Johns Hopkins University. He began his career at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Welcome to the show, Nick. Jennifer, thanks for having me. Great to, uh, I really appreciate the introduction and look forward to connecting on various topics as it relates to compensation and, and kind of where to go from there. Yeah, I thought it would be interesting to talk about negotiating salaries, especially starting salaries, which I know gives a lot of people heartburn. And so let's just start with, do you have a few rules of thumb, like ground rules for negotiating a starting salary? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a couple things, and these are kind of just trends that we see, but typically people will not leave their current role unless they feel like they're getting about a 20% premium to where they are. And that's usually encompassing of both cash and equity, right? So that's a total comp package. Um, but as a rule of thumb, we typically p see people saying, you know, hey, for me to actually want to leave, I want to see something like a 20% bump. So I think using that as a kind of context for thinking about negotiation, um, I think there's a couple things. I think one is really understanding kind of how do you match up or benchmark against your peer set, right? And what is that peer set kind of currently earning in the market? And so I think doing upfront diligence, whether that's looking at Glassdoor or other platforms where you can just see kind of comparable industry norms for compensation, I think can be really helpful for you, particularly as you think about how you're going to negotiate. Um, I think also 
thinking about what the role looks like, right? So sometimes, for instance, as a financial officer, recruiter, I do a lot of CFO recruiting, but but sometimes I do CFO plus. And so that may be a CFO and a chief business officer role, or maybe that's a CFO that also has more operational oversight, like IT, HR facilities. And so because of that, that actually may be a point of negotiation to say, I'm actually not just a CFO, but I'm doing so many other things I'd like to be rewarded or recognized for that. So I think to going back to your question is really understanding Kind of what the market is yielding for this role and so doing your upfront diligence there and then also understanding what is the role itself really encompassing and should i get benefit or recognized for maybe kind of broader responsibilities that i might have i'm glad you mentioned that because it seems as though the cfo cfo role is particularly vulnerable to that, right? That it's somehow once you're you're kind of identified as the grown-up in the room, that all these other things can get heaped on you, whether it's HR operations or IT. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that that the CFO role seems to be very flexible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think people should should get rewarded for that. I think also, you know, as the CFO becomes more flexible, though, too. Sometimes in the kind of compensation structure, the CFO may already be getting credit for IT, HR, et cetera, that's reporting in. So I think, again, just do your diligence on the role that you're recruiting for uh, and make sure that you get a sense of kind of where other folks are in the market. I know that's easier when it's a public company, Section 16 officer, and that that information is available. Um, But looking at, at platforms like Glassdoor, it can be helpful to get those comparison data points. I got my first advice about negotiating from my dad. And since he was a professor of physics, it might not have been the ideal place to get information about uh, uh, negotiating for your pay. But he was very old school. And there were certain things that he instructed me or kind of gave me some foundation in about negotiating in good faith or what I would now call in good faith. And one of the things that he said to me was, look, if you go to a potential employer and you say, these are the things that I want, if you give me these things, whether it's salary or you know the, the different components of compensation or other rewards, and they give that to you, if they turn around and say, yes, 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 to your checklist, you really have to take that job. And so I was wondering, you know, how many decades ago it was that he gave me that advice. Do you feel as though that's still valid or do you think that there's more flexibility now? It's a really good question. I I think that's really good advice. And I think that continues to be a great kind of rule of thumb in in, in how I, I live by and how I would encourage folks to live by as well. So I think to start, Companies, when they're hiring, for the most part, depending on the role, right? If it's a role where it's pretty set, straightforward and across sector, it's defined where the comp is going to be, there's probably not a lot of room for negotiation. But if it is a more senior role, the company is actually going to expect you to negotiate. And if you don't, they may say, well, how are they going to represent us in the market um, when they're negotiating on our behalf? Are they just going to throw in the towel? So actually, it's important to do it, but it's important to do it tactfully. So I think being really upfront and having a pretty honest discussion around these are the things that are important for me early on is really the way to do it. I think there's stages of an offer and you have a certain time where you can really be um, kind of candid around these are the the factors and the the offer that are important to me. 
I think once you move past that stage and you start kind of being piecemeal, maybe in your request or sort of renegotiating certain aspects, that may also kind of one, it, it will irritate the client, but they're also going to say, this doesn't feel like, or excuse me, the company, this doesn't feel like a really sophisticated negotiator. Um, and so I think your dad's advice is exactly right. So B, I think once you kind of state out your requirements, make sure that's kind of what you can live by uh, before you share it with the, the company. And then once it is, I think you really kind of abide by that. Good. I'm glad to hear you say that. I will say that when I'm on the other side of the table and it looks as though either I'm being manipulated a little bit or maybe the person isn't very clear on what it was that they wanted, like they're kind of coming back with something a little bit different, then I have to ask. And of course, it's only human, right? I get that, that people are having second thoughts or they're talking to their spouse and you know, new things are coming up. But as the person on the other side of the table, I do start to wonder, like, you know, how carefully has this person thought this through? And mm -hmm. it, it, does this raise questions about their behavior in the future? And it's probably not totally fair to expect people to be just, you know, locked in to know exactly what they need from the beginning. But I do get nervous or uncomfortable when people start, it feels like I'm starting to get jerked around a little bit. And if something comes up, I think that's a really good point. I think if something comes up and you feel like maybe you've passed the point of negotiating, but suddenly this is really important, the sooner you do it, the better. Um, no news, no bad news gets better with time. So I think being just really kind of upfront with the, the kind of other party is important um, because I don't want to say that unilaterally you can't you know, add something in. If if you learn something new in the process through that conversation that suddenly is pertinent to the offer uh, or how you perceive it, I think it's important to, to vocalize that, but do it sooner rather than later. And I think once you really come to an agreement and shake hands, it, it does look kind of poor to then go back and say, hey, wait a second, what about this? When I talk to people about salary negotiations, especially when they've gotten an offer and they want to take the offer, but they, they also want a little bit of flexibility on the salary side of it, I often hear people worry that, oh, if I ask for anything more, you know, they might just yank this offer away from me. It's like the kid with the ring on the merry-go-round or something, you know, it's like, oh, it's just within reach. And uh, I personally have never experienced any bad reactions when I've asked to negotiate or ask for some flexibility on the compensation. I have heard a story about that that circulated a few years ago. And it, you know, unfortunately, it was all in the context of, oh, it was a woman and she tried to negotiate. And so they just yanked the salary and this is what happens. Have you personally run into anything like that? And how valid are those concerns? So I haven't seen that. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, that, that anecdote that that happened. I, I don't, again, I think it's one where oftentimes companies want to see someone negotiate because it's a bit of the assessment process, right? How is this person going to do uh, under other negotiating circumstances. So no, I don't. I think it's one though, you really wanna be thoughtful around what are you negotiating? Are you negotiating for the sake of negotiating? And really, again, going back to the market value of the role, um, does this feel in line with where you're seeing the role kind of stacking up in other organizations? Um, because if your role, so say it's a $250,000 kind of base salary and you're looking elsewhere and the peer set is all at 250, 
and you're demanding 350, that doesn't really seem like that's going to make a lot of sense unless you're really bringing a set of skills that those other folks who are in similar positions don't have. Um, and so I think it's one where just being smart around your experience and what you're bringing to the table and, and kind of what the market value is, is really important and, and will set you up for kind of the best negotiation. One thing I always like to counsel my clients about is have some phrases ready, have some words that you're going to use that you've practiced ahead of time so that they have exactly the right tone that you want. And I know I'm springing this on you, but do you have any phrases that you would use when you, when a person wants to open the conversation about, do you have some flexibility on the salary side? Absolutely. So I think it's always good to show gratitude. So I think just ensuring that the offering party understands that you're grateful for the, the offer and that you are excited potentially about joining them. I think those are all things to make sure that they understand, hey, this person is in fact interested in our role. Um, and then I think saying, as I've taken time to digest the offer, I think typically what we encourage folks is we, we don't really see people accept an offer on the spot, right? I think it's one where they want to take it and, and take maybe 24 hours to kind of review the numbers, digest them, make sure that everything works out, and then be able to respond thoughtfully to them. And so I think having that bit of time to reflect on it, to then come back and say, as I've looked through the offer, I'm really pleased about these, these aspects of it. Here's an area. Is there any kind of flexibility here? Um, maybe in your current role, you have a higher target bonus potential, or you're hoping to see um, a base salary of a higher level based on what you've seen in the market. So I think being kind of very upfront around your interest in the role um, and gratitude towards it is a good way to kind of start uh, that discussion. I think that's really true. And I definitely have had many of my peers, you know, whether it's HR, the CEO, when somebody comes back and asks for more, there's kind of this sense of, well, you know, we're all humans, right? It's sort of like, well, if we offer this person more, do we know that they're actually really interested or, you know, we don't want to go out on a limb and set precedent for things unless we really have the sense that this person is interested. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that because sometimes we forget that in the, the heat of the moment that we need to yeah, acknowledge that we feel really honored to have gotten an indication that somebody wants us, right? And I think also on the other end of things, and I know, Jennifer, this is not necessarily a topic, but if you do get an offer and you're ultimately not interested in the opportunity, I think it's one where you should respond as promptly as possible. I think oftentimes companies who are issuing offers will want to hire someone who's going to say within 48 hours, I can't wait to join. This is great. I think once that offer has been out for more than that period of time, they start saying, well, wait a second. You know, why aren't, why isn't this person actually kind of said yes yet? Um, and so that can be a factor of if this is ultimately not the right opportunity for you would really kind of encourage you to, to disengage earlier um, in those discussions. Yeah, that's such a that that's really such an important observation also. And you know, we forget when we're on one side or the other what the other side is going through. And yeah, I mean, I've definitely been there where the company is starting to say, "Hey, what the heck? I mean, is this guy 
looking for another opportunity elsewhere. I mean, just what's going on, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Okay, to shift gears a little bit, I wanna talk about this new law that we have in California where employers are not allowed to ask for salary history anymore. And it is a complicated topic and I, we could spend all 30 minutes talking about it. But it was intended to essentially level the playing field between those who don't negotiate very well and so potentially are paid less and those who negotiate better and so uh, to make it so that the employer doesn't necessarily know what they were paid before and maybe that would be a way to combat the gender pay gap in California and as I say, it's complicated. It was never clear to me that it was going to work. But what do you see on your side? What 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 effect is that law having? Yeah, no, it's a really good question, and I think it's a it's a it's a good law. Um, I think it's something that certainly needed to be addressed, and you see many other states adopting it, right? So Massachusetts, Washington, I mean, many many states have adopted it as well. I think that I think it's having its effect. Um, I think that the conversation has shifted from you know, where's your compensation today to what are your expectations? Mm -hmm. And so it's put the onus in some regards to folks who are looking at opportunities around, okay, what are the expectations that I want for this role? And maybe them having to be the ones to anchor the conversation around, I need the base salary to be X, Y, and Z. I need a target bonus of X, Y, and Z. So I think it is, I think it's, it's been beneficial and been effective, um, but it's, it's changed the way that the discussions are happening. Yeah, certainly. And, and I do think that's, you know, if that's the outcome of the law, I'm all for that, right? That it's not about what you have been paid, but what your expectations are today, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman or Hispanic or whatever, you know, a, a forward thinker, who knows what, right? That that we, you know, that we're not paying people based on what they were paid before, because there, there's a lot of flaws in that. So I'm glad to see that, that, that you see that as a positive thing. All right. I recently read an article by Gary Bernison. I guess he's the CEO of uh, Corn Ferry, which is also a very prestigious uh, recruiting company. And he said that in this article, he said being, quote, nice. Uh, he said it was the worst negotiating tactic. The example that he gave was somebody apparently came into his office bearing a fruit basket. And so the whole time that they were talking, he's like, no, you know, surely there's an explanation for why he brought me apples and pears. Um, and ultimately, apparently it was just some sort of ingratiating tactic, which, you know, probably wouldn't make anybody feel that great um, unless you knew the person already. Right. So, so do you have any examples of that kind of mistake of being kind of overly nice? <laughs> So I'm of the school that I think being nice is a good thing. I think that mm. we could all, as people, be nicer. Um, I think at the same time, bringing a fruit basket, I don't know if that was to try and push for a higher salary or what. I don't think that's going to be effective in the long run. Um, but I think you can be a nice negotiator, and I think you can still be effective, right? So um, I think it's one where being really well-situated, knowing your facts, when you go into the negotiation and not just trying to wing it, but really actually driving the discussion meaningfully, having data and thoughts around why the compensation needs to be a certain level or what's important to you are things that you need to really have upfront and ready to go. So I think some people can wing discussions and be really effective. I think most of us 
really need to spend some thought, uh, some time and putting thought into how we approach things. And my recommendation is if you're going into a negotiation around compensation, a fruit basket is not going to be a deciding factor there. Um, but having kind of the, the, the context and the, the data to support your asks certainly will. Mm-hmm. Well, and to your point, you know, presenting them in a cordial way, uh, exhibiting some social skills. I mean, in that way, you're also demonstrating how you would treat other people, whether they're vendors or uh, potential employees um, or, you know, partners, you know, you're demonstrating the, your interpersonal skills. Yeah, exactly. I think it's one where those do not have to be mutually exclusive. Um, I, I get what he's saying, and I'm, I'm sure there's more context in that article that I, I, don't, I don't understand. But, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't bring a fruit basket expecting additional, uh, additional dollars from that. <laughs> like a bribe <laughs> for fruit for cash. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he goes on in that article to say some of the things that, that you've said. Do your homework, know your market value. I mean, he also says, let them, let the employer put the first number on the table. Would you say the same? Yeah. And I think in our process, typically our, our employers really have a sense of, okay, we're going out to market to do this search. And we're thinking that the compensation is going to be at this level. And we've done our diligence with Radford or other third parties around what is market compensation for these roles. And so they're not arbitrarily putting these numbers out. It's something that they've done their own diligence on. Sometimes that diligence needs to be revised or it doesn't necessarily make sense for the particular geography that you live in, right? California is a much higher cost of living than the center of the U.S. And so there's some nuances that I think are important to think about there. Um, But certainly the employer is going to have a sense of where they're hoping to target this at. And so it's one where they will likely come to you and say, hey, we expect, you know, we'd like to start at, at this level. Um, and typically they'll expect that, that number to be negotiated. Yeah, I want to circle back to that a little bit too, because I would sometimes see people receive an offer with a, with a big sense of mistrust. Like, oh, they're just trying to get me for, for, you know, less than market value, or they're trying to pull one over on me. And I actually never felt that way. Maybe it's because of the kind of companies that I worked with. But I sometimes would see people get into this kind of poker mode, right? That, uh, you know, they're, they're very distrustful and they're, they're going to try and manipulate the company or I'm being manipulated. Do you have any wise words for people who have kind of that mindset going into it? Because I always felt like the companies were pretty clear and as I say, maybe it's the kind of companies that I worked with, but we're pretty clear on what a fair offer would be. Do you think that's just naive? I don't think it's naive, but I think not all companies are created equal. And I think there's different kind of schools of thought. I mean, if I felt that I got an offer from a company that was way below what I felt was market, that might be a flag to me in regards to maybe how they perceive this role and how much value they kind of put towards it. And so it would make me maybe think twice about, is this really the right move for me? Is this company really going to be the one that is, is this role the right role at this company? Um, that would just make me think about if I suddenly saw something that was maybe 
you know, 60% of what I felt was market. Again, that's where you're doing your diligence and you know what that number should be or feels like. That would probably be a flag for me, to be honest. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, actually. And I can imagine that that could happen. It's like, oh, wait, we don't have the same idea about what this role is and, and it, whether or not it has a seat at the table and what is strategy involved, you know, kind of the things that would make for higher money. Exactly. And I have had very positive experiences with recruiters. I mean, a few exceptions, right? Probably more for whatever reason on the East Coast than on the West Coast. And I found them to be very valuable in educating me about roles, companies, appropriate compensation, and so on and so forth. Again, do you think that that's a reliable source of information or are you worried that it would be like real estate agents who just want to make a deal? No, that's great. I mean, again, I think it's not all recruiters are created equally. So I think it depends on what your relationship is with this person. I think from my perspective, I try to create kind of lifelong relationships with with candidates and clients. And we're going to, you know, if we don't ultimately do a a search together now, I would like to be able to do one in five years, right? So my credibility is really important. And so I really try to give perspective as to why compensation figures are a certain level with with candidates um, and really try to kind of thread uh, the negotiation to to come to yes between the two parties. Um, But I think it's one where, you know, again, if this is someone that you, you don't really know well, or maybe you don't agree with them, I would take, you know, sometimes their, their word with a grain of salt. Um, but I think that's really, again, coming back to, and sorry to sound like a broken record here, but, but doing your diligence and understanding where these roles are, are kind of netting out so that you have that information where if you hear something that doesn't make sense, you could say to the recruiter, well, that, that's kind of strange because I've seen this company is hired in this role at this level and kind of push back a little bit. Um, again, within means, if it's, if it's within kind of a, a $25,000 range, I think you're, you're pretty close and you'll probably get there. But if it's one where it's, where it's significantly off, I think that's, you know, a sign that maybe this person doesn't have the right numbers or, or that's, that's a, a, something to question. Yeah. Again, I'm springing this question on you here, but we often do distinguish between retained recruiters and contingency recruiters. I actually found that there were very many, very reputable contingency recruiters here in the West for whatever reason, not that much so much in the East. Um, Do you want to describe for us briefly what the difference is and do you have any observations about a relationship with a retained recruiter versus a contingency recruiter? Sure. So I think retained search is you have an exclusive contract to do a search with a client, whereas contingency, they'll be working with a number of different firms to fill that role. Typically, you see contingency at used more frequently at, at levels maybe below the VP level, whereas retained is kind of VP and above. I, I, I would say I, I know a number of folks who are contingency recruiters, and I think they're fantastic, and I think they do a really good job. So I, I don't want to say that you know, there's there's a preferential one or the other. I think, again, it's one where establishing a relationship with someone for the long term can be really beneficial. And I would say having a relationship with multiple recruiters who are going to be working on a number of different job descriptions, who are going to have points of view. Um, maybe they're in different cities. Maybe you know someone in San Diego and you know someone in San Francisco or San Francisco and New York. Just having those different perspectives, I think, is really helpful. And then also seeing the different job flows that are going to come from those will also benefit you. 
Yeah, good. Thanks for that. I think that's really good education uh, for our listeners. Okay, so here's my personal story that I've wondered about uh, for many years. When I took my position, let's see, so I think this was, it was a VP position. It was the one before I became a CFO. And I accepted the position by phone. And the very next day, a recruiter whom I've known for a long time called me and asked me if I would have lunch with a person that she thought I would really like. And I went to have lunch, partly to, to meet that person. And sure enough, I really liked him. And he was actually offering me a CFO role. And I really liked the company that he was with. And it just looked like, oh, what a, you know, the timing, ow, this hurts so much. But I, I guess, you know, partly my dad's influence, right? I mean, I'd already accepted that position the day before. There was no denying that. I mean, I hadn't signed anything, but I, you know, I mean, this, I'd essentially given my word. But I have wondered since then, and I, and I can't say that I regretted it, right? I can't, I mean, I don't sit around and bemoan it. It's more a, a curiosity in my own mind. And I've wondered if I was just being a little bit too much on my high horse about that. So if, if you had been able to advise me, what would you have told me to do? Yeah, it's a good question. I've been reflecting on it because you, you shared this one with me earlier. So maybe I'm not provocative enough, but I think you made the right decision. Um, I think my advice to you at the time would have been this other opportunity you've said yes to what would happen or how would you feel if that relationship is completely gone? So mm. if you burn that bridge and you felt like you would never be able to speak with those people again, is that going to preclude you from other opportunities over time? I would really weigh that and, and the importance of that. Um, I would also have said, do you feel like this other opportunity is really going to set you on a path that is unique and so differentiated from the other one that you know, maybe it's going to be life-changing. Um, again, that's a personal choice. And I think it's one where it, the person really needs to kind of reflect on the two paths there and, and what are the kind of best and worst case circumstances that are coming out of them. Because it could also be one where you say yes to that, the, the, the one you verbally accepted, maybe they share a board member with this other company and then suddenly they both find out and both opportunities blow up. And so there's a lot of different things that can come from that. And I think ultimately your own personal value system and what you kind of espouse and, and how you think of things um, is ultimately going to be the one that that drives you to make that decision. But I think making sure you think about all the outcomes and consequences that could come from it are important. I think, Jennifer, ultimately you probably made the right choice, but I, I, I very much understand kind of where you're coming at, right? It's, you know, it's a, it's a really kind of unique experience for you to have had. Yeah, it was it was strange. But that's I actually I really like how you think about that because you know, San Diego Biotech is a pretty small town and the company that I went to, you know, is pretty well known and very um well known and admired board members and so I would not have wanted that mark on my record. And I also really like your consideration of the new and improved offer. You know, was it really going to be life changing? And the reality is probably not. I mean, I I really like that person, and 
um, really liked that company. But I went on to have, you know, a really great career after that, too. So it wasn't as though, oh, that, you know, that something really dastardly or dramatic came from that. It's, it was all qualitative differences, I would say. Mm -hmm. But the biotech community is really small. The financial officer community is really small, whether that's San Diego, whether that's West Coast. And so those actions can have broader impact, you know, further down the line as well. And so I think just being thoughtful about that is, is important. Yep. Good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm wondering if you would like to share your contact information with our listeners, how they could get in touch with you or more information about your work or your company. Yeah, absolutely. Jennifer, thank you so much for hosting me. This has been a lot of fun and great kind of catching up on these topics. Would be happy to connect with, with listeners uh, further. They can Google me. My name is Nicholas Roberts uh, and type in Russell Reynolds. There's a our website that includes my phone number and email, uh, but my work phone number is 415-352-3373. Alternatively, my work email is nicholas.roberts at russellreynolds.com. Uh, but both of those are easily Google. You can Google them uh, and find me through our, our, our homepage. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. If you have a problem at work that you would like to submit to the show, you can do that at my website, discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. Spelling matters. Anyway, send in your issue. We'll treat it with confidentiality and respect and see if we can give you some tips or tools. You can also sign up for my mailing list or The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, as well as get information about training programs, books for sale, individual consulting sessions, and all kinds of articles and jokes and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday, so tune in so you can hear more about coping with trouble at work.